0: Hey guys, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Grad Life Game Changers podcast. This is the podcast where we bring on guests that have followed less conventional careers and are too left of center for our regular careers podcast. My guest today certainly falls into that bracket. Simon Cooper, a multidisciplinary journalist writing who covers football, politics, culture, and is most known for his great articles that he does in the Weekend FT. Uh, Simon, it is great to have you on the show. Uh, to kick it off, could you tell us about the football articles you write for the Financial Times? I guess people wouldn't associate the FT as a, uh, a sporting newspaper, but you've, you've done some really great, insightful articles on football for the FT. How did you end up writing some sports
1: articles for them? I mean, I've always toggled in my writing between writing football and writing political, social articles. And I was always very reluctant to be trapped into the box of just doing sports writing. And for 12 years I was, I was just a sports writer between 98 and 2010. And I found it very frustrating because on a daily basis I have to say writing about football in particular rots the brain because you are surrounded by a lot of stupidity. You are listening to the manager tell lies at the post-match press conference or self-justifying stories about why they lost stupid questions from journalists about, you know, um, whether the player's not motivated enough. You are covering things that really don't matter to anyone, really. Any adult shouldn't be obsessing about, you know, whether Everton beat Aston Villa or Aston Villa beat Everton. To so do that, I understand completely people who really care about that as an escape from their daily life. But if you're doing that every day, it just, as I say, it makes you more stupid all the time. And I'd started writing football already aged 16 when i returned from the netherlands to england i began writing an article every month in world soccer magazine about dutch football because i sort of read the dutch media and i wrote what was going on there wasn't more complicated than that so i'd always had this football uh, track to my writing and i didn't ever want it to be the only track so i joined the financial times in 1994 partly because of the financial times as you've suggested, never really does much sport. They didn't have never had a daily sports page in my experience there. And so there was no risk of being trapped in the sports track. And the Financial Times writes about things that I thought really matter why some countries are rich, why other countries are poor. The Financial Times doesn't see, as most British papers see, Britain as the center of the world. It cares about what's happening in other countries. So that was very much the kind of writing I wanted to do. And when I write about sport now, so since 2010, I, my day job has been writing a weekly political social column in the FT. And when I write about sports now, it's it's when I have something particular to say or particular access. So in 2019, for example, I always had good relations with FC Barcelona. In 2019, they agreed to let me write this article. I'd interview people from top to bottom of the club, doctors, psychologists, youth coaches, nutritionists, the president, everybody, uh, as well as a player or two. And so I went there and I wrote this article and out of that came the book that I've just published because I realised I was more there than an article. But that's the kind of writing on sport that, that I try to do now. Occasional, irregular and adding value. So I'm not, you won't find me kind of sitting in the press
0: conference with 200 other journalists on a uh, daily basis. That leads pretty nicely onto my next question because I, it's one of the things I've noticed about you, Ryan, is that you're, if, when you have done football articles, They've never been purely football focused. And you mentioned there how uh, that would pretty much drive you insane because of the amount of stupidity you're surrounded by in football. So it sounds like this was a very much a, a conscious decision you made to kind of write about football matters off the pitch and be at the forefront of football innovation, like your book, uh, Soccernomics. Was this something that you've purposely done throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to say always want to write about football I want to say something that not everybody is saying and when you're let's say Manchester United Liverpool with the rest of the English media it's very hard to have a different view because you're surrounded by journalists who really are watching Manchester United 50 times a season who are at the press conference they just know that club better than you do and that's you know I never wanted that life kind of traveling around the Premier League forever. And so you've got to then think, well, what value can I add? What can I do that's distinctive? And also journalism has become a very uh, cruel career if you just do what everybody else does. Because salaries have dropped, there are ever fewer jobs. um, There are so many people who want to write about Manchester United, Liverpool, that you get paid very little for doing it. I was once told that if you did a match report on a Premier League game or First Division game in the 1980s, you would get 150 pounds. You know, you drive to Birmingham, whatever, you'd write the match report, 150 pounds in the 1980s. By the 2010s, when I was told this, the fee was still about 150 pounds. And of course, with inflation, that has, you know, completely sucked the value out of that. So I, I didn't want to be doing what everyone else does. It doesn't pay, it's boring. So I look at football and I think, what can I say that's different? And so soconomics, which is a kind of using data to understand football better, was a way to say things about football that not everyone was saying. Or my recent book about Barcelona, going inside the club, spending time there, is a, I was given access that other people didn't have. And so I could say something that other people couldn't. And also, of course, the story of FC Barcelona transcends just football. I always find it interesting to link football to Society, politics, history, anthropology, to take those kinds of approaches to football, because then already you're probably doing something different. And I think football is interesting. Sometimes football is just interesting as a game. So I covered the European Championships. You're watching some of the best national teams in Europe. It's very emotional. It's nice to do that once every two years or so. So I've covered big tournaments for 30 plus years. But a lot of the time, what's interesting is when you can link football to other things going on in the world and that's
0: mostly what i try to do in my football writing let's get on to your new book why write a book on barcelona and also why title it the makings of the greatest club in the world when that is a uh, a pretty um, subjective statement some might say yeah so the this book was
1: written just before finished just before messi left barcelona and it's true in britain the title is Barca, the Inside Story of the World's Greatest Football Club, which I'll come to in a sec. In the US, the title is more prescient. It's um, something like uh, the Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the making and unmaking of the World's Greatest Football Club, which was very prescient because the day that I published the first extract in the Financial Times, August 5th, on the morning, that afternoon, Barcelona told Messi, Leo, you have to go. So Messi very kindly helped me launch my book and get a lot of publicity for it. What's the basis for saying that Barcelona is the world's greatest football club? It has the largest following on social media of any sports club in the world, in any sport. And that's a good metric for how many people are interested in it. So I think they have about 250 million social media followers, more than Real Madrid, more than all NFL clubs in American gridiron football combined. So there are a lot of people around the world who really care about Barcelona. So this really is an institution. And as I was writing, the book. When I started writing the book, I thought this is sort about greatness and genius and the beauty of human creation. It was kind of escape—an escape for me from the ugliness of the politics I've been writing about, Trump and Brexit and climate change and COVID-19. It's all very depressing and ugly. And then you escape into this beautiful creation, uh, Johan Cruyff, my childhood hero, who invented the football of today, the most interesting man in modern football. To Messi, you know, the most beautiful footballer. And as I was writing it, I realised, hang on, this institution is crumbling. I realised that sort of in spring 2019. And so it became a book about not just
0: the rise, but also the fall. I am a Liverpool fan. However, Barcelona kind of became my second team throughout the years, especially during the Guardiola era, where I just really fell in love with the team. As a football fan, it was impossible not to. It was just football at its absolute pinnacle. And I'd never seen a team play like it and um, the sort of chabby and yes and messy axis was just um, breathtaking at times however over the last few years i've struggled to keep that sort of that sentiment towards barcelona because of how they've conducted some of their matters off the pitch as a liverpool fan i remember pretty profoundly how aggressively i would say they pursued philip continuo where on a few occasions before he was even a Barcelona player, I think on one time they might have leaked his jersey on the website, or other times they may have leaked the press that he wanted to go, and it felt like there was a lack of class about how they went about their business off the pitch. I also remember quite well when there was rumors of Fabregas going to Barcelona after Spain won the World Cup. You saw the Barcelona players putting. Barcelona jersey on Cesc Fabregas when he was still an Arsenal footballer. Dirty tricks they used to get the player they wanted. Did you see any of that? Do you think there is a lack of class about how they conduct themselves off the pitch?
1: I think there's a lack of class about how almost any football club conducts itself off the pitch and I I wouldn't exempt Liverpool from that. I I mean the people I've dealt with at Barcelona, I, I have found it personally the friendliest club I've I've walked in the door of but I think there's a huge difference between the way fans see football and the way people who sort of get on the inside see football so the players they learn to see the club as an employer often an employer they don't particularly like the journalists the employees of the club the directors once you're on the inside a lot of that kind of magic disappears and you see this as a business it's a dirty business it's a job a lot of people are unhappy they don't uh, have loyalty that fans have it's just completely different a friend of mine who's a Sunderland fan described it very well he said that he briefly worked in football journalism and one day he was in the tunnel before kickoff as the players were lining up the Sunderland players And he looked at them, you know, wearing their Sunderland shirts, and he realised they could be wearing any shirts. They don't care about that particularly. This is their career. And if you listen to how footballers talk, the words they use, professional, career, that is their attitude to football. So I sort of, that kind of illusion of majesty and decency, I lost that 30 years ago when I... 1992-93 when I was doing my first book and I started to, I peeked behind the curtain. When you peek behind the curtain, and a Barcelona director told me that, he said, when I stop being a director here, I
0: won't be able to talk to people about what I've seen because it would disillusion them so much. On that, where do you stand on the modern day footballer? Like Their wages are getting crazier and crazier each year. Football wage inflation is just, it's ridiculous. I've I've not seen anything like it. I, I remember back in 2010, possibly when I think Yaya Torre was the highest played player in the Premier League. He might've been on 160K a week. And we thought that was crazy. Now that's nothing in football. Now, I think Paul Pogba, his newest contract could be up to 400,000 euro a week. Are these guys just going to be uh, continuously out of touch with the working class fan? Or because most footballers come from sort of working class backgrounds and have had to work through adversity and work incredibly hard in the most competitive industry in the world to get to where they are, will they still remain humble and in touch with the club? See, I don't blame footballers for the wages they earn. And if somebody offered you or me 12 million
1: euros a year, we would probably say yes. And I also think that footballers are extraordinarily good at what they do, which is different from most professions. So you know, a lot of people will say, oh, he's a donkey. Or he's rubbish. That's completely false. We all try to play very good football, all of us who love the game, and we didn't succeed, and Paul Pogba did. And so their level of expertise is extraordinary. I mean, you get people who work for banks and earn a lot of money who aren't optically clever or good at what they do. And they got the job because of where they went to school or because of who their father is, that kind of thing. That doesn't happen in football. Even to play for Tramere Rovers, you have to be extraordinarily good. You know, there's so much competition. And watching the Euro at times, you know, I was flabbergasted. Just the the level of football is so much better than it ever was. So for a start, that's on the wages. You you call them crazy, but you know, ever more people around the world watch football. So there is money coming in. Clubs are actually, most of them before the pandemic, financially fairly solvent. So I don't think that it's crazy in a business sense, but of course it's completely out of whack with how other people live. Now in the Barcelona book, I, I. I looked at the question, how do footballers live? What what is it like to be a Barcelona footballer? And they they live apart from our society. And I don't think it's really their fault. I think it's because we, the fans, dehumanize them. So if you think of the footballer's life, especially since the invention of the smartphone, if you are, let's say, Paul Pogba, and you walk down the streets in any city, people are coming up to you, are taking selfies of you, if you're at the next restaurant table to Paul you might be filming him. You might be trying to record his conversation. People always want something from them. People are bothering these people in public all the time. People also know they're very rich. so People are constantly coming up to them and saying, hey, I have this brilliant business idea for you. Don't you want to invest in my restaurant? So they learn to keep the rest of the world at a distance. Often they live very, uh, in this very small circle of their family who they trust of a few friends who they knew before they were rich and famous. And they trust other celebrities because other celebrities have a similar kind of life sometimes. So, you know, Gerard Piquet is married to Shakira and they have similar lives, similar incomes. And I just think it's very hard for them to connect to the rest of society because society goes completely crazy when society sees a footballer. So I, I remember this, you know, we live in Paris and a few years ago, my two sons, we're at a birthday party at the Parc des Princes, the Paris Saint Germain stadium. So you can go to a lot of football stadiums nowadays, birthday parties, do kind of adventure games. The club earns a bit of money. And when these 10, 10 year old boys were there, Edison Cavani drives up, then the Paris Saint Germain striker. And the dad who was organizing the birthday party sent me the video. And you see these 10, 10 year old boys run up to Cavani's car, shouting at each other, hey, look, it's Cavani, it's Cavani, and, tr- and kind of rapping on the windows and crowding in. And Cavani was actually very nice about it in the video. He's smiling, he's waiting patiently for them to have their moment. But they're not treating him like a human being. They don't realize he's a human being. And so I think that a lot of footballers actually yearn to connect with the rest of society. So they might give a beggar on the street 200 euros. They might leave 50 euros on a restaurant bill that's only cost, if they have a cup of coffee in the restaurant, they might leave 50 euros. tip. They do a lot of charity. They do a lot of activism now because is the most educated generation of footballers there has been in history, they would like to go to their local coffee shop, but they can't because all of us treat them like lunatics. So I don't particularly blame them. And also they, from the age of 12, they've been told by their family, by their club, you don't do anything else. You just focus on football. And so they have a very limited life experience.
0: I've heard you speak very highly of Paul Pogba in the past um, and he gets a very tough time in the British press. I think some of it is justified. Uh, however you have met him in person so just be interested to get your take on why you would um, be more sympathetic to paul pogba and to what he's gone through and, and and why you quite like him in person i
1: mean look, I, I had 45 minutes with him once when he was at juventus i find him a very likable man friendly engaging listens wants to talk wants to say things doesn't want to kind of give standard answers thoughtful Intelligent bloke. I've seen uh, the documentary of the French team at the World Cup where he's clearly the leader, although not the captain. He's the guy who, before the game, calls them all together and says, Guys, this is what it's about today. This is what we're going to do. Um, I mean, he speaks four languages. I'm, I'm impressed by things about him. Uh, at the World Cup, he was asked a question in, by a proven journalist in Spanish, and the translator starts to translate, and Bogdra says, No, I'll do this in Spanish. And he gives a very fluent So, I I find a lot of these guys, when I've interviewed footballers, I've tended to find them likable. um, And I feel sympathetic to them. And as a footballer, I, I think that in Britain, there's this demand for work rate, which I understand. So, fans say, oh, he's being paid all this money. He must show he's running around and, you know, doing these 90 miles an hour tackles and this kind of thing. And I think Paul Pogba is a great footballer, he's the most gifted. European footballer. He's the most gifted footballer, I think, other than Messi and Ronaldo. But he's not the best footballer. Pogba can do everything. And like a lot of people who are brilliant, he really cares about his craft and his art. And he wants to give this incredible force yard pass. And often he does, surprisingly often, he hits this outside of the foot pass and it ends up through, goes through the whole other team and ends up in exactly the right place. It's incredible. I don't think Pogba became a great player because he was willing to, willing to run more and tackle harder than anything else. I think English fans to some degree value that more than greatness. I think Pogba, like Dennis Bergkamp in his day, is a sort of artist who needs that moment of, this sounds very pretentious, but I think he, he seeks those moments of inspiration, of feeling just right, of giving that pass. And sure, it doesn't fit completely from what clubs want from a week-in, week-out footballer playing 50, 60 matches a season. But that's kind of the footballer he is. I often feel that, I mean, the he-must-work-harder the, he work-rate thing is it's as if you're talking about, say, a soldier. You know, he has to be out there every day doing, doing his up- utmost. Whereas if you use the parallel of the artist, and we don't say to Claude Monet, you know, Claude, I, I saw you weren't working yesterday. I'm really, I'm really shocked by that. Monet does what he does, he, he produces things of beauty and brilliance. He doesn't have to do it every day. So I think our, the demands we place on the footballers are not always the things that they want to or that they can deliver. I understand the frustration of United fans, but I think it's a misunderstanding of what the greatest
0: footballers are all about. My counter argument to that would be that football is an industry like no other, and you can't compare it with other careers. If you give everything to a football club and you become a football icon, you get so much more out of that career than anybody else does. Like when Steven Gerrard leaves Liverpool, he leaves a hero. He leaves with 60,000 fans chanting his name and they'll still chant his name to this day because he displayed work rate, passion and above all loyalty over anything else. He chose to save the club over bigger wages, more trophies. And and I think there's so many fans that would die to be in Pogba's position and that it, it was their dream to play for their club, that they expect that from a player when, when he comes in. They expect to see that player play at the same level of passion and ferocity that they would because mm-hmm. they're one of the 60,000 Adorian fans that will chant that guy's name and that guy will get something so much deeper than just a wage packet at the end of the week. He, he comes away with a connection with a fan base and a connection with a city that you don't get out of, out of any other career. I mean, I'd say three things in response to that. One
1: is Gerard didn't show loyalty. He was very tempted to go to Chelsea and he came very close to going to Chelsea. And he admits that in his autobiography. And, you know, I read at one point a series of football autobiographies by people like Gerard, Carragher, Ashley Cole, Frank Lampard. They all, Wayne Rooney, they all either leave or were very willing to leave their boyhood club. And Carragher, is seen as a model of loyalty. He said, look, if I'd have been on the bench at Liverpool, I wouldn't have shown loyalty. I would have left. And I think that's very honest. So I'm not saying that Gerrard is a fraud or anything, but he he is a great footballer who would prioritize his own career. He was in a good place at Liverpool and they paid him this enormous wage. I mean, he, they, he didn't stay just because he was a nice guy. And so that's one thing I'd say. Two, Gerard and Pogba are different kinds of footballers. I think it's just a mistake to expect Pogba to become a Steven Gerrard footballer. Pogba has more inspiration than Gerrard and Gerrard has more work rate. You know, They're both great footballers in, in very different ways. And three, you say just a wage packet. I really don't think that for Pogba, it's just about the wage packet. I don't think that at all. I think that footballers are not, on a day to day level, concerned about how much money they earn. I think they want to be the best they can. They know wherever you go, you know, whoever you play for, if you're that good, you'll earn a lot of money. They want to be the best they can, but what the best that Paul Grapp can be is a different kind of footballer than the best that Gerrard can be. And I think to use Gerrard as a template for how all footballers
0: should be is wrong. I was just giving that as an example. as There are these, whether you want to call them loyal or you can look into their circumstances, there are these one-club players that display this heroism on the pitch, the Stephen Gerrards, the John Terrys, uh, the Roy Keynes, but these guys that looked like they would die on the pitch for a team and they get something back from the fans, which you, you can't translate into, into any of the career. Well, you uh, get something back
1: from the fans in England, because English fans expect that football, love the footballer of the model that you're describing. In a lot of countries, people would say, you know, Stephen Gerrard, he was a good footballer. He lacked a lot of things. He, mm-hmm. um, he did not have a brilliant vision. He did all these kind of 40-yard runs on the ball where the other team is saying, come on, Stephen, we know exactly where you are. Just run us up, show us your work rate. And um, he, he did not have these kind of defense splitting moves as often. Gerald is a really good player, but I, I really think that your uh, all these examples you cite, Gerald and Terry, it's a, a keen, it's a very particular kind of British football, which has also died out. It's not the, the, the best British football as I see today. And I, I think that once that's your model, you're missing a lot of what great football is about. So English football, English fans tend to detest Neymar. I mean, I think if you ask Lionel Messi, who do you think is the best other player in the world? Who is the player you would most like to play
0: with? He wouldn't say Stephen Gerrard. He would say Neymar. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a fair point. You've spoke a lot in the past about the sort of stupidity in football and how the game is still run by a lot of idiots. In the age of big data and science in football, how is there still room for these guys? Like, it's it's unforgivable that a club like Barcelona do not have the best in-class recruitment team in place and are in the position they're in now.
1: Yeah, I mean, stupidity is declining, but it's still there. So I was at this conference where Ian Graham, who, as you know, is the uh, brilliant head of research of Liverpool, who's been very influential in the club as a kind of emissary of John Henry, who believes in data, um, Ian Graham was teasing the Barcelona people about we use data to inform our transfers, but you don't. And then you're really missing something. And with hindsight, you'd have to say that Ian Graham is right, because Liverpool, which is a smaller club than Barcelona in financial terms, has bought better players in the last decade for less money than Barca has. And so, for example, it was the Liverpool data analysts who persuaded, against Klopp's original will, persuaded Jurgen Klopp to sign Mo Salah. And at Barcelona, it's still very much... Uh, hey, this guy looks good. He scored a brilliant goal last week. Let's fork out $150 for him. So, I mean, the reason why you can do this is because in football, there isn't much punishment. It's strange. There isn't much punishment for failure. In business, if you are really stupid, your business will go bankrupt and it will just die. And in football, if you're really stupid, well, you won't win trophies and then somebody else will come along. But uh, as long as you can survive somewhere in the game, it's not such a big deal. So, oh, you might get lucky, you're really stupid, but you know Lionel Messi comes out of your youth academy and then then you win anyway. So it's a it's a game of, where everybody survives. If you look at English clubs of a hundred years ago, pretty much every single one has survived intact, two world wars and the Great Recession and so on, Great Depression and the Great Recession. So yeah, there just isn't
0: that much punishment for failure in football, and that's partly why stupidity has survived. I want to talk about Messi. I I don't think we'll ever see another footballer like him. Uh, When I started watching football in the early noughties, um, you used to have these kind of silky wingers. Um, One of the observations I've made of football over the years from watching it is that type of winger has kind of died out because the level of athleticism of defenders has just gone through the roof. Usually now the fullbacks aren't just great defenders, they're also the quickest players on the pitch. So to get a sort of silky winner that beats players is, is very rare. And Lionel Messi at a guy at the age of 34 years. Not only does he still beat defenders, he beats the best defenders in the world and he puts them on their backside. I just think he's an utter, utter phenomenon. And he's probably now, it's not about the greatest football of all time. It's like, is this guy actually the greatest athlete of all time? From studying him over the years, is there anything you can pinpoint that you think um, can, contributes to his genius? Have you been able to pick up anything about his game that makes him so special? Well, in the book i've tried to really kind of analyze
1: what he does on the field and how he who he is off the field because i got sort of irritated with and this is an example of football stupidity people saying Lionel messi he's done it again he's a magician and you know i think um arsene wenger called him a playstation footballer and samuel eto said he's like a cartoon so we use all these superlatives. we don't actually look at what he does And one thing he does, I mean, I'd highlight a couple of things. One is he has very short steps. And that's an advantage because when you're in the air, when you have both feet in the air, when you're running, you can't change direction. You can only change direction when you touch the ground. And Messi touches the ground faster than the big guys marking him. So he's able to change direction faster than they can. The other thing is that Messi scans the field more than anyone else, partly because the last five or 10 years, he's stopped doing any defensive work. And so he only runs about four kilometers a game. I think most players are running like 12, 14 kilometers, 12, let's say. And so what is he doing when he's not running? He's looking. And so when he gets the ball, he knows where everyone is. And he knows where he is going to go. And so he has this kind of visual record of the game. I noticed one thing, which I describe in the book. One game, I was sitting with a Barcelona official in the company. It was Barça Atletico. And the referee blew for kickoff. And the official said to me, watch Leo now. And we watched Leo for five minutes. And he didn't watch the game. Leo is walking around the the Atletico defense, looking at all the players, registering in his mind. You're the right back. That's where you are. You're the center back. That's where you are. So he walks around for five minutes. And during that time, Javier Mascarano passed to him. And Messi just kind of watched the ball roll into touch. And if you look at Messi's scoring record, I think he's barely ever scored a goal in the first five minutes of the game because what he's doing is he's creating a visual record of the field and then he starts to play. So Messi, more than anyone else in the history of football, and I agree with you, he's off the charts, knows where everyone is. Now, I, I asked a couple of great, great players, uh, Kylian Mbappe and Frankie de Jong, about Messi. And de Jong said, I think people underrate. How much better Messi is than all the other players. This was a couple of years ago at Barça. And Dion said, Look, Barça, really all the players here should be world-class. But Messi is a lot better than the rest of us. And that, that's really quite startling. Mbappe said, I would never compare myself to Ronaldo and Messi. Those guys, he said Mbappe said, When I walk onto the field, I tell myself I'm the greatest footballer in the world. He said, You need to tell yourself that because nobody else will do that for you. And that gives you the confidence to you know, to do very brave and uh, actions and runs on the football field. But he said, I tell myself that, but I know that Ronaldo and Messi are much better than me. And he said, I would never dare to compare myself to these guys. They've broken all the laws of statistics. So here are two players anyone else would describe as great. And Mbappe, many people see as the best player of the coming generation. And he says, Messi is much better than me. So I think that's quite startling. And we, in the book, I have this chart of goals of, uh, scored by footballers in the last 40 or 50 years and you see a cluster of dots of the world's best scorers and then there's one dot that is way ahead above everyone else on the chart and that's Messi so yeah I think that uh, it's hard to say he's the best athlete in the world but he's by far the best footballer I during the book I interviewed Roger Federer for the FT I had this lunch with the Financial Times with Federer in his private plane and I said to him I want to ask you about Lionel Messi and Federer said I talked about Lionel Messi way too little in my life. And he said to me, have you met Messi? As if, you know, Federer suddenly became a fan. So, have you met Messi? I said, no, I haven't met Messi. And he said, what I love about Messi is that he has so many more options than other players. When he gets the ball, Messi can either run with it, he can dribble, he can shoot, or he can pass. And so, he said, the problem of sort of geniuses, Federer didn't use that word, like Federer in tennis or Messi in football, is you have the problem of choice you can do anything imagine if you're Messi on the field or Federer on the court you have every shot you can do anything and then the problem is what should i do now what choice should i make should i run should i pass should i shoot and messi at the beginning of his career was not a great decision maker and he became the great decision maker so he managed to master decision making which is much more difficult if you're Messi than if you are just say bog right back because the bog standard right back doesn't have a problem of choice He gets the ball and he's trying to get it to a midfielder. That's all.
0: And so for Messi, that's much more difficult. So these are some ways in which Messi is special, different and perfect. I thought it was a shame that when it was announced he was leaving Barcelona, straight away it became pretty obvious to everybody that there were only two clubs that could afford him. Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain. Two clubs that are funded by Middle Eastern oil money. With a lot of shady things going on in the background. I've heard you speak about Messi in the past, about how he lives a very, very basic lifestyle. And it sounds like money doesn't impact him that much. Was there ever a possibility of him going to a different club and saying, I'm going to go for half the wages, but instead I'm going to play with, I don't know, a bar in Munich that might have a bit more football heritage and that might have a project I believe in more? Or was it always just, it's going to be PSG or... Uh, Man City
1: I think for top footballers a salary isn't so much what you put in your bank account, a salary is a measure of quality and worth because in our book Stockonomics Stefan Jomanski and I showed that the best indicator of success in football is the wage bill of a club so essentially the club with the highest wage bill wins the league, that's Manchester City and the club with the lowest wage bill gets relegated that's Norwich say and so if you're Messi, you don't think I really want to add 30 million to my bank account. You think I want to play with brilliant footballers and it has to be a club that is you know, willing to come and get me. And so if the clubs you mentioned, PSG and Manchester City, there are all sorts of shady things going on. But Messi, like a lot of footballers, is very underdeveloped in his world outside the field. Unlike, say, the Marcus Rashford generation, he barely got an education. He sort of left school in his mid-teens and he's been encouraged to only think about football by everyone around him. So he doesn't, if you say to him, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, these are states that are not democracies, they don't observe human rights, he doesn't really know or think about that. What he thinks about is, I want to play with brilliant footballers because I think you can't really expect of a footballer like Messi to say, oh, well, I'm going to play for a know rubbish team like I'll go back to Rosario because that's my hometown and I want to play for my hometown team if you're that good at what you do you want to do it with the best it's very hard to play your best football alongside people who are not that good and that's been a bit of a problem with Argentina because obviously he plays with people who are not good and I completely understand he wants to go and play with great players I mean it'd be interesting had Bayern Munich come in and said Leo we're going to offer you 50% of what Manchester City are offering, but we've got a great team. I mean, he might well have done it. I just think um, Bayern, and the city didn't offer him either. And I think Bayern didn't, wasn't interested in him. And I think it's more about football because Messi doesn't defend anymore. That's very unusual in modern football. Really, every player has to defend, every player has to go both ways. <laughs> very uh, organized collective team like Bayern or Manchester City wouldn't ex- wouldn't really accept a player who as soon as the ball is lost just stands there and watches the game and PSG which is much more an assembly of stars are willing to buy a player like that so I think it's more about football than about money but in football money is
0: is a measure the best measure of quality I'd like to ask you about the future of football do you think there'll be another attempt at a European Super League, and with the sort of decline of financial fair play and the, um, the influx of money from the Middle East, I get the feeling that the Champions League may only be shared between sort of two to three teams in the next 20 years. You, we could be looking at a stage where it's just constantly Man City, PSG, possibly Chelsea, sharing it between them. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Just want to get your take on how football evolves and... Can the Champions League remain a competitive league that still has 10 Super Clubs that could win it?
1: I think the Super League is dead. I I really can't see anyone being stupid enough to try and revive that. And even if they do, um, a lot of the big clubs are not going to be willing to go in a second time. To a degree, we have the Super League that people have been talking about Mm -hmm. for 50 years. It's the Champions League. And I think the best equilibrium for the big clubs is to play the Champions League and then the domestic league. The only I think the Champions League will grow a bit and the domestic leagues will shrink. So you might see a Premier League of 18 or 16 teams, even. But the big question is, do you which one do you play on weekends? Because only on the weekend can you schedule the game so that the Americans, the Europeans, and the Asians can all watch. So the weekend is prime time in soccer. And for now, the English want the Premier League on the weekend. The Spanish and the Germans, I think, would be willing to give that up, but not the English. They want the Premier League and not the Champions League on the weekend. So the other question is, is financial fair play dying and therefore will the oil funded clubs run away with the prizes? I don't think uh, financial fair play is dying. I mean, the reason Barcelona had to get rid of Messi was because the Spanish league's financial rules bit so hard that they forced Barcelona to get rid of him. If these, if the Spanish league hadn't had these rules against overspending, Barcelona would just have given Messi a new contract. He would just still be at Barcelona now, but the national leagues also have these kind of financial fair play versions. Now, UEFA has relaxed its rules for the post-pandemic, which is why PSG are able to lose something like 300 million this year and bring in Messi. But that's the pan- odyssey of the pandemic. During the pandemic, all the clubs lost money. It wasn't their fault, the stadiums are empty. So UEFA said, look, we're gonna relax the rules for a year or two, but you've got to kind of make it up over four or five years. You've got to be solvent over a slightly longer period. So PST are using this opportunity to inflate their losses. And uh, they say they'll make it up in time to come. But the chance of putting Messi and Neymar and Mbappé together is too big for them to resist. So I don't think financial fair play has lost its bite. I think uh, owners like John Henry and the Glazers and Stan Kroenke are very, very keen on financial fair play because they don't want to spend more money. And financial fair play is a way to stop clubs spending
0: more money. You mentioned how uh, your friend observed with Sunderland players were running out the tunnel and they could have been playing for anyone. Do you see the modern day football fan, someone like me, as completely deluded to think that these players are playing for the badge on the front of the shirt, not for the name on the back, and that they deeply love and care about the club and that sort of romance in football that I uh, I think is really unique to the sport, the, the obsession fans have with the club. Do you just think it's become, it's delusional now, it's out of place, that fans should now become more like yourself, appreciate individual players and appreciate their, for them for their genius, but don't become overly invested in your football club because the reality is these players are there for their career and not for the club. I have to say, I felt the fans' view of footballers as playing for the badge. I felt that's been deluded for
1: Ever, ever really ever since i began to think about it they're not they're, they're not like you uh footballers are, are just they have a different attitude they work in this industry and you just you're just a consumer of the industry or not a consumer you're a, a member of your club a sort of spiritual member and I, I i completely understand that people get community and identity from their club and that's beautiful i don't particularly feel that myself because i've got too close to football to still feel that but i think you to feel that and then people say well in the old days you know you had these one club footballers and so when i think of your club liverpool when i was a kid you had players who were at liverpool forever you know dog leash and ian rush and steve highway and david faircloth they were always there or emily hughes and did these guys love liverpool well perhaps perhaps not but nobody gave them the chance to move it was very hard to move and you couldn't really earn much more money I don't know if footballers ever were loyal. I just think in the past they didn't have a choice to move, and that's why they were one-club footballers. So if you think of Emlyn Hughes, the Liverpool captain in the 70s, if somebody had come to Emlyn Hughes you know, 40-plus years ago and said, Emlyn, you've always been at Liverpool, but I'm going to pay you five times as much to play for Barcelona or to play for Bayern Munich, do you think he would have said, no, I love Liverpool, I I would die with Liverpool, I'm not going to leave? Or do you think he would have said, you know what? That sounds really interesting. So it's not that footballers in the past had higher moral standards; they were just operating in a different workplace. What's your believe that that players are playing for the badge?
0: Maybe a couple of. What's your relationship with football now? Do you see it as a sport that's just become so inherently corrupt and ugly, or do you still view it as the beautiful game? With a few idiots that are involved running it and making some poor decisions which is impacting how we see it
1: it's all those things it's the beautiful game it's you know the beauty of human creation it's also that it's suffused with stupidity and corruption in many places it's all those things i have to say most people i've met in football like i've been around psg i've been around manchester city clubs that people talk of as these kind of demon figures most people are quite nice, just like most people everywhere are quite nice. So I, I, I've become quite sympathetic to it, partly because writing about, as I was saying, writing about Trump and Brexit and climate change, you see so much horror and human stupidity and corruption and venality that, to me, football is actually better than, than all that. That's, that's partly why I spent all this time writing this book about Barcelona. It was an escape into beauty.
0: Simon, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Um, You're one of my favourite journalists and Socceronomics is one of my favourite books and I look forward to reading The Makings and Unmakings of the Greatest Club in the World, Barcelona.
1: Thank you very much, Finn. I enjoyed it.